you have a Bible this morning, turn to the book of John, chapter number 5. <clears throat> I was recently smitten with the, uh, the, uh, the differences found in the Gospel of John. And though I had I'd always read through the Gospels, and when I got to John, I, I would see these lengthy speeches that were not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I never really thought a whole lot about it. I just read through. But recently, I started looking closer at it and come to find out there are some, some significant differences in John from the synoptics or the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, one of the reasons I found out is because John lived so much longer than the others. They died off earlier, so John had the privilege of seeing the establishment of the local New Testament church explode. Now, early on, it started primarily with Jews hearing the gospel, getting saved, and joining the church. The church at Jerusalem was primarily a Jewish saved church. But as Paul, of course, took the gospel and began spreading the gospel all over the area and over the known world at that time, churches were established and his converts were primarily Gentiles. And so the, the, the church grew incredibly so and it turned upside down where the church was primarily a Gentile church. So John, desirous of, of ministering and, and, and getting the gospel out to as many as possible, felt this burden, how can I take the simplicity of the gospel of what Jesus Christ did and put it in a way so that a Gentile, not exposed to all the Judaism, not exposed to all the, all the requirements and all the, all the things that a Jew would have to do that had no application to a Gentile at all, how can I take this gospel and put it in such a way they can understand it? And of course we know that one of the most famous gospel passages is found in John 3.16. The simplicity of the gospel. God worked on John's heart, established his mind, and gave him a gospel that is there for you and for me. We didn't have to go to Jewish school to understand it. We didn't have to be around Jews to understand it. We could have the simple plan of the salvation exposed to us, and we could say, I believe that Jesus Christ was God's Son, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, three days, he was buried, three days later came alive. I can believe that without knowing one thing about a feast. And I, as 11 years old, I didn't know anything about the feasts, but I knew I had a loving Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me, and I put my faith and trust in Him and Him alone to save me. Now, with that in mind, John gives us certain things that the other Gospels don't. And so I started just searching through and finding out the, what those things were, and one of those things is the story we find today in John chapter 5. Let me read for you the first nine verses of John chapter 5. It says, and, this, and after this there was the feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. 
When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. There's a reason why in John's Gospels there are very few miracles. Now, Matthew is loaded with miracles, as is Mark and, and Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're all loaded with miracles. But there are very few in the book of John. And it seems like when John includes one of Jesus' miracles, he uses it to teach a lesson. And I believe we're going to see chapter 5 expose a lesson that Jesus is teaching because of this incredible miracle of the healing of this man that had not walked for 38 years. I want us to pray and ask God's direction and wisdom, so let's bow our heads at this time. I thank you, dear Lord, for your love, and I certainly thank you for your healing powers. I thank you, Lord, for healing me spiritually many years ago. And I thank you, Lord, for the numbers of times that you have touched our loved ones and you've brought healing physically to them. And Lord, we look forward to a day where we all will be healed completely when we're in, your, in heaven with you. So Lord, I pray that you might bless this time and help us to understand what you'd have for us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage there in John 5 begins with the words, After this. Well, after this is what's previously said in the previous chapter. We talked about last week Jesus and the woman at the well. Wonderful, wonderful truth. Showing us Jesus' incredible love for this Samaritan woman. No other Jew would give this woman a second's notice. But, of course, we have Jesus as our Savior. And Jesus takes notice in each one of us. For God so loved the world... Jesus loves us. Also, the story goes on, talks about the healing of a nobleman's son. So he says, after this, after this, there was a feast. And I'm told there were three required feasts that Jewish men were legally required to attend every year. If they lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, they were legally responsible to make that trek and come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Um, uh, three of them, where are they? Uh, Pentecost, Passover, and Tabernacles. Those three specific feasts. Now, there were many other feasts, but they were legally bound to come to Jerusalem to celebrate those feasts. Many of the commentators believe that this particular feast that Jesus was talking about here, that he came to, was that of Pentecost happening 50 days after Passover. It's interesting that Jesus made it a special point to always be in Jerusalem for these three feasts. Now we talked about a place called Bethesda. The word Bethesda means house of kindness or house of mercy. And on this Bethesda, there were five porches. So you can envision in your mind what I see anyway is a pool of water. 
And on the side of this pool is this building structure, and they have piers, if you will. Some of them possibly stretching out into the water, and there were five of these porches or piers. I believe they were probably covered. And so I see these piers stretching out into the water with covering to protect from the, from the weather. Many handicapped people were there filling these piers. It says a great multitude lay. There were scores of handicapped people, of the blind, the halt, the maimed. It was quite a bunch. There's quite a bunch of folks there. You walk down there and you hear groaning and moaning and people not being able to see and all, all they couldn't walk and, and people having to be carried. It was quite a sight. And there was a multitude of these people, lots and lots of them. Now, to me, a great multitude means more than five or six, perhaps a hundred, perhaps two hundred. More than likely, the porches or the piers were full of these impotent people. Now, there were all kinds of physical weaknesses there, and they were waiting for what the Bible says here, the troubling of the waters. Now, this little story has troubled theologians for a long time because it really seems out of place, and there's no other place in the Bible that has anything to do with waters being troubled. There are many that say this is not even a part of Scripture. Well, I tend to believe it is part of Scripture, and that God wants us to learn something from this. I had one commentator said, it's possible that this is just an analogy here. It's just, it's just an analogy. It didn't really happen. So I don't know. What I do know is Jesus didn't, didn't give us a whole lot of information describing it. He wants us to focus on what he did give us. So here we have a, a pool that where healing was available. Now it's interesting that it was only available, however, to one person. Only one. So, so look around this morning, and we've got a fairly good crowd this morning. This is very nice. I appreciate you being here. But now what if each one of you had a very serious physical malady? Let's say all these folks over here were blind, and they could not see me. People had to help them come in. And all these folks here couldn't walk. You had to be carried in. And all these folks over here couldn't hear couldn't hear, so somebody next to you is, is helping you understand through Braille. And all these folks can't think. So, so we've got <laughs> so we have all, all the infirm, all these different kinds of infirmities here that we're, we're talking about. Now, at the, at the troubling of the pool, let's just say we've got a little swimming pool up here. And we don't know what's going to happen, but every so often, and it doesn't say how often, perhaps once a week, perhaps once every two weeks, I don't know, perhaps once a day, we're not told, but whenever the pool is agitated, there's bubbles come up and it gets agitated, the first person to get into the pool gets healed. Isn't that awesome? That's pretty incredible. The first person, it doesn't matter. It says any disease. I don't care how bad your disease is, even mental difficulties, it doesn't matter. If you get into the water, you're going to be completely healed. So let's just say, let's just say we've got all of you, and the reason you came this morning was for this pool. And this pool is right up here, and we're all waiting for it to be troubled. Not concerned, I mean, blah, 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 bubbled up. And all of a sudden, it starts bubbling, it starts bubbling. Well, now, you, fo you folks over here can't see it. You folks here can't get to it because you can't walk. 
bless you, you can't even hear that it's bubbling, and you don't know any better. And so what are we, what are we going to do? Well, we have to have, so the first person, the first person to get up here, so bless his, bless his heart, Mike, who is here today, hallelujah, finally be able to come back to, to minister with us because he's been laid up. And thank you, Mike. Praise God that you're able to be here. Mike takes his walker, and he hobbles up here, and he gets into the pool, and he throws his walker away. He's healed. Wouldn't that be awesome? And oh, we all clap for Mike until we realize, why did he get healed? And not me. I mean, I'm happy for you and all, Mike, but, but you've only been laid up a few years. Some of these folks have had struggles for years and years and years. Why should you get healing and, and we not? So I don't know. I, we're not told. We're not told what kind of emotional struggles these folks were going through. We're not told anything. All we can do is conjecture. Here you have all these people came from all parts of the area, and they're now filling the porches up for one express purpose, because they want to be the person in the pool to get healed. But we don't know when it's going to happen, and we don't know how we're going to get there. So I want you to think about this poor impotent man who's had this infirmity for 38 years. Now, once again, we're not told how long he's been sitting on the porch. Does somebody carry him there every morning and just lay him there all day long waiting for the pool? At the end of the day, they come back, oh, didn't happen again. They take him back home. We're not told. But he's there day after day after day watching others, those that can somehow get into the pool. And perhaps, perhaps he, he tries, perhaps over and over again, he tries, he tries, but just as soon as he gets anywhere close, somebody else is already healed. Poor guy. Poor guy. After, after weeks and weeks and weeks of seeing others healed and him having not a chance, because, I mean, look at, around, look at the crowd. Look at the crowd of all these people. And most everybody else can get there before he can. He's going to get hopeless. Why try? Just, a, just as soon, just as, soon as, as, as I get a few healed, I'm thinking, okay, well, okay, all right. So if I wait long enough, this crowd is all going to be healed. The problem is, as soon as one person gets healed, ten more come and show up. Hopeless. You've got to feel for the guy. Maybe he struggled with some envy. A little, a little upset at the good fortune of others. And angry and hurt that nobody noticed him enough to care for him, to get him in the pool quickly. You see, this, 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 story, this story teaches us some principles. And I've really been struggling trying to say, okay, what is the main thing? And I don't know what the main thing is, but what God gave me is this. Jesus obviously came and was so burdened for the Jews. And they were so oblivious to his ministry, oblivious to him. And, and it wasn't long before Jesus presented himself to them that they rejected him. Now, now individuals along the way would come to him and trust in him, but, but as a group, they rejected him. So, so what I see in, in this particular picture here is Israel 
Israel, who had been so long looking for their promised Messiah, their deliverer, the one that was going to come and deliver them from this Roman domination. They were sick and tired of being what, told what to do. They were sick and tired of these heavy taxes. My land. Year after year came by and no deliverer. They were looking for this magical, mysterious deliverer. No deliverer. Now, there was, through the years, there were some interesting things that happened. Some prophets came along and did some miracles through the years. But they were still in their, their bondage. So they were looking for this supernatural, this, this it's incredible deliverer that just never came. Israel, by Jesus' day, had come, become pretty hopeless. They're miserable. Miserable. As a people group. And they were envious. You know that the Bible says that they sought to kill Jesus for envy. The envy. And they were angry and they were hurt. God had ignored them all these years. Whoa, woe is us. Israel was wallowing in its misery. <laughs> but all the while... All the while they were looking for this, this, this supernatural deliverer to come and to save them from the Romans, they failed to turn to God, repent, and plead to him like this impotent man, God, I have no man. God, I, I have no one. They didn't turn to God. The Jews didn't turn to God. They did not repent. The Jews had this spiritual blindness over them. And they refused to turn to God because, after all, God could get them out of this mess, and he wasn't. So Jesus showed up, saw this impotent man, 38 years he'd have been there, and Jesus, of course, took compassion upon him and said to this man, Wilt thou be whole? What a question is that? <laughs> Do you think he doesn't want healed? He had to hear him. He had to hear him confess. He did, and Jesus healed him, just like Jesus would have healed any of those individual Jews that would turn to God, repented, and come to him. They, uh, they missed it. They missed it. The Jews were looking for one thing, and when Jesus came, they missed it completely. They were looking for this, this, this incredible deliverer, Oh, Jesus, don't bother us. We're waiting for the deliverer. But, I, but I'm here. I'm here. Don't bother us. We're, we're waiting for our Redeemer, the one to save us from the Romans. But Jesus said, I am He. I'm here. I'm the Messiah. Oh, stop that. We want the Redeemer. I shouldn't have ought to done it, but when I was a kid, I oftentimes would go to the refrigerator and nobody's looking. I would... I would take these, these gallon or these half gallon jugs of milk and I would drink out of the jug. Now you shouldn't ought to do that. And I know that. <laughs> but I did it. But we got these glass bottles, so the milk was delivered in the glass bottles. And I would love to go in there and, and I just guzzle this milk and it's so good. Oh man, and my, my folks got it from a dairy and it was just so good. 
One day I went in there, and, and, uh, and I knew that I didn't have much time, so I was kind of in a hurry because I knew Mom was coming, and I wanted some milk. So I grabbed it real fast, pulled off the cap, and I just leaned back and took a great big gulp. Solid cream. It was just this butter. I didn't realize it was buttermilk. I didn't know that. And at the time, it, it didn't mix, so all the real heavy, heavy buttery cream came to the top. So I got all this blob of cream, cream in my throat, and it's going down. I can't swallow it. It's making me sick, and I, and I can't get rid of it because Mom's coming. i got to swallow this. And, of course, that cream just coats your throat, and it's just there forever. And I don't think I've drunk out of a bottle since, if I'm not mistaken. I was so disappointed because I was expecting one thing, and I got another. The Jews were expecting one thing, and they got another. In verse number 6, in our text, when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man said, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. You see, the impotent man blamed his lack of access to the pool on the physical condition. See, I'm not healed because I can't do it. I can't. I can't maneuver myself and there's nobody to get me. He said, I can't be healed because I can't get there. But what the impotent man failed to understand what his true need was. The impotent man failed to offer, or failed to understand that Jesus was right there. He didn't have to get over to the pool. The pool was not his salvation. The pool was not his healing agent. The healer was right there. He didn't understand his true need. He thought he needed someone to put him first in the pool, but what he really needed was simply to be healed. God's people failed to understand their real need. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, but they failed to discern Jesus at the first. In Luke 24, verse 17, And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another, as ye walk and are sad? He says, What are you talking about? You're, you're talking about something and you're sad, Jesus said. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But notice what it says. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. We trusted that he was going to redeem Israel or save us from the Romans. You don't understand, mister. They didn't know it was Jesus they were speaking to. The one that we had put our trust in to save us from the Romans was dead. It's dead. Our hopes are gone. They thought they needed deliverance from Rome. That's what they thought. They were tired of Rome's heavy intrusion into their lives. But what they really needed was deliverance from their sins. Jesus brought healing. 
In verse 8, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Perhaps for many years this man had been coming to the pool. He had to have someone carry him there day after day after day. But day after day he went away disappointed because somebody else got healed. You can imagine his look of intensity as he focused on the pool. Focused on the pool, just waiting. Was that, was that movement? Was that, was that movement there? The Jewish nation had been looking for a supernatural appearance for their, their Messiah for many years. He would come in a grand manner to be their king and powerfully deliver them from the Romans. Their lives would become blessed as under his leadership, Israel would again blossom and thrive. Oh, how they longed to have their king set up his kingdom. Well, the king came. Jesus came. And he told the nation, in essence, to rise, take up thy bed and walk, or believe in me as the Son of the Heavenly Father, the promised Messiah, and walk as the redeemed children of Israel. Instead of becoming whole and walking, they rejected him and initially criticized him for healing on the Sabbath. In verse 10, the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Honestly, can you imagine the audacity of these men? Here this poor man has been unable to walk for 38 years. 38 years, not a word of them saying, hey, guy, good to see you. I got healed. That's wonderful. No. What are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath? Do they know what they're saying? This man can now carry his bed. He has not carried his bed. This is an amazing miracle. How dare you carry your bed on the Sabbath? The Jews were critical. And they were annoyed that this man was doing manual labor on the Sabbath. They ignored the fact that he had not been able to walk for 38 years. All they could see was that he had broken one of the rabbinical laws. How dare he? Verse 11, and he answered them, He that made me whole, this same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and saith unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Then the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore, notice this, when the Jews found out it was Jesus, notice, Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. They wanted him dead. How dare you heal someone? How dare you heal someone on the Sabbath? What Jesus had done incited their wrath and they elevated his offense to a capital offense. By the way, from this point on, in Jesus' story, 
He was public enemy number one as far as the Jews were concerned. But why the disparity between their concern and upset over the healed man and Jesus? First of all, they see this man on the Sabbath carrying his bed, and they shake their finger, how dare you? But when they find out that Jesus is the one that healed him, they want to kill him. Why the disparity? I think it's because Jesus, or the Jews knew that Jesus' miracles would cause their people to follow after him. And they could not allow that. They could not allow their people to follow this heretic. Here's the sad thing. In so doing, they missed out. They were so focused on deliverance from the Romans, they missed the deliverances that Jesus brought. Deliverances like healings, forgiveness of sins, love, a revelation of the Heavenly Father. Jesus took some incredible time and courage next in front of these Jews that were so mad at him to reveal to them who he really was. He says in verse number 17, But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. They're angry enough to kill him, and he said, But my Father worketh, and I work. But you're working on the Sabbath, my Father working, and I work. But it's the Sabbath, but my Father works, and I work. In other words, Jesus said that his heavenly Father works constantly, so, so did he. Jesus confessed to them to working on the Sabbath and that he healed a man. You see, God's prohibition to working on the Sabbath never meant to restrict doing good for others. The rabbis had, through the years, added multitudes of restrictions, making it almost impossible to rigidly follow. That was not part of God's intent. Verse 18, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. We don't understand this as much in our culture, but in the culture of the Jews, adult fathers and their sons were looked at on an equal plane. There was not one above another, they were equal. And when Jesus claimed that, his heavenly that the Father was his heavenly Father, he was in essence claiming that he was his son, he's his father, they are equal. And you can imagine what the Jewish mindset would react to that. This man just claimed to be equal with God the Father. That's an abomination, worthy of death. And they sought even harder to kill him. Verse 19, then Jesus, they answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, 
and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Notice that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. <laughs> you got to give it to Jesus. He had courage. He had courage for him to tell these folks the truth like this, knowing that, that they're, they're, they, were, they had blood in their eyes. They were so angry. <laughs> I found it interesting, since, since Jesus' miracle here of taking this, this blind or this impotent man who was unable of himself to get to the pool. It just wasn't going to happen. Of himself, he could do nothing. Of himself, he could do nothing. Jesus said in 519, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Isn't that interesting? How he takes and, and goes back to this, this miracle. Jesus declared his right to be honored. To be honored. He had submitted himself to the will of his Father. He had made himself of no reputation. His actions were in accordance to his Father's will. Jesus declared to them that by submitting himself to his Father, the Father committed all judgment to him. And the Father was honored as they honored the Son. Anyone not honoring Jesus was therefore not honoring the Father who had sent him. He even went beyond that, saying he was equal to the Father. He said that he should be equally honored, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Whew! My land, do you know what you're saying, Jesus? Do you hear yourself speak? Yeah, he was telling the truth. He was expounding truth. And had they chosen to believe had they chosen to say, we are in the presence of the eternal Son of God, they could have had their sins forgiven. They could have enjoyed the wonders of heaven forever, but they instead had gotten so envious and full of hate, all they could see was the fact that they hated this man. They hated this man. And he could not be the Son of God. To a non-believing Jewish audience, these were fighting words. Notice verse 24. Verily, verily, Jesus said, which simply means, Amen, amen, let it be so. I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. Not only is Jesus courageous enough to tell the truth, saying that I am the Son of God, and I am to be honored as the Heavenly Father is to be honored. He also gave them the plan of salvation right here. Believe on the Son. Believe on me. Believe on me. Literally, he that hears what I say and believes what he who sent me said hath everlasting life. Hear the word of God, he said and believe on Jesus, the sent one of the Father. Believe on me. He offered to them eternal life. 
everlasting life. <laughs> and he doesn't quit. I guess he said, I'm already committed. They already want to kill me. What more can they do? And he continues. Notice verse 25. Verily, verily, amen, amen. He says, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. The Bible teaches that an unregenerate heart can respond to the words of Christ, specifically the gospel. Those who are dead spiritually can choose to trust in the Lord by faith. John 16, 8. And when He, the Holy Spirit, has come, He will reprove the world of three things. Of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. No, you will not be able to communicate the truths of eschatology to an unsaved man. They're not going to get it. They're not going to get it. What are you talking about? It makes no sense. But oh, to an unsaved man, they understand the concept of sin. They understand the concept of righteousness. They understand that Jesus can be the, the God's Son. They can understand judgment, that there is coming judgment. They understand that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit reproves the world of these things. In verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So it says Jesus will speak to the dead. Now if he hadn't got their attention by now, <laughs> he's got it. This man's talking to dead people. What do you mean? Talking to dead people. He's talking about the two resurrections. They that shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Jesus will call the saved to the resurrection of life. We call that the first resurrection, or heaven, and the unsaved to the resurrection of damnation. The Bible calls that the second death. Jesus will speak to the dead in the two resurrections. But Israel, once again, had ignored their witnesses. Under Moses' law, it took two or three witnesses to, to establish a truth. There had to be at least two witnesses agreeing to establish a truth. Two or three witnesses. In Deuteronomy 19, 15, it says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity, or for any sin, and any sin that he sinneth, at the mouth of Two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. Well, Jesus, beginning in verse number 30, basically dis discounts himself as a witness. He says in verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself... My witness is not true. In other words, you will say that my witness is not true. If I stand up as a witness for myself, you'll simply deny it. You'll simply ignore it. You'll simply say, I'm lying. So Jesus gave them four credible witnesses. 
First of all, verse 32, there is another that beareth witness of me, Jesus said, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, John the Baptist, and he bare witness unto the truth. They believed that John was a prophet. So Jesus said, you believed that John was an actual prophet, and he bore witness of me. There's one. And verse 37, And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. The Heavenly Father. Number two. Remember, from the heavens, this is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. The Heavenly Father bore witness that Jesus was the Son of God. In verse 39, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Number three, the scriptures, the word of God. And number four is verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me. Why? For he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? There's number four. It took two or three witnesses to establish a matter in Jewish court. Jesus said, well, I know you're not going to believe me, so I won't count myself. So I'll give you four witnesses that prove that I am, in fact, who I say I am, the Son of God. The Jews were looking for this mysterious, incredible deliverer to save them from Roman domination and establish this great kingdom where they'll live in peace and security forever. All the while, they missed him when he came because they were looking for the wrong thing. Jesus came to deliver them first time, but not from the Romans. He came to deliver them from their own sins. They had to repent first. So what I see in this story, this incredible account of Jesus healing this impotent man, I see a misunderstanding of what the real need is. They thought, the impotent man thought, his need was the pool. That wasn't his need. Jesus proved that wasn't his need. Israel thought their need was the deliverer to come and to get them away from the Romans. But Jesus proved that was not their real need. Because had he delivered them from the Romans, they would still have a heart problem. He came to take care of their heart problem first. So let me just close by asking you a simple question. What is your real need? You say, well, Pastor, that's an easy one. If you knew my financial mess right now, you would know the need that I have. Right? Perhaps your real need is not finances. Perhaps your real need is to learn to depend upon God. So, Pastor... I've got this health problem, and man, it just consumes me. I'm so concerned about this health problem. Is it possible that God wants you to learn your real need of being 
Learning that His strength is made perfect in your weakness. I have no friends. That's my need. I have no friends. I'm so lonely. Perhaps your real need is to learn that there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And he wants to be your friend. I just wish I had a problem-free life. Day after day, if it's not one thing, it's another. Problem after problem after problem. Perhaps your real need is found in Romans 5, 3. Tribulation worketh patience. Perhaps from God's perspective, your real need is not a problem-free life. In fact, it's a life with more problems. But he knows he can't give you more because you're not handling the ones you've got right now. Because what he really wants to develop in you is patience, that completeness, that which makes us spiritually like him. And lastly, real need. Do you know for sure that when you die, you'll go to heaven? Oh, pastor, I'm trying to live my life good enough. Pastor, I'm trying to have my good works somehow outweigh my bad works. And he said, your most important need is to understand that like that impotent man, there's no way that you can get to the pool. On your own, it's impossible. You must put your faith and trust in the one who's already paid for your sins. Coming to Jesus, confessing your sin, acknowledging that you are a sinner, and trusting Him and Him alone to save you. So what is your need today? Whatever your need is, Jesus has the answer and the solution. So I want us to bow in prayer, and we're going to pray and ask the Lord to meet those needs. Dear Lord Jesus, like this impotent man had become so hopeless, I believe that we sometimes become hopeless, too, because of whatever we're struggling with in life. It just seems like we have no relief. Lord, would you identify our real need this morning? Lord, help us to get our eyes off those distractions and those things that demand so much of our emotional focus. Help us to see what you want us to see. Lord, help us not be like the Jewish nation, whose focus was so much on one thing that when you showed up, they missed you completely. God, every one of us here has a need, and that need is to be conformed into your image and to bring you glory. So help us, Lord, to realize that need and to, and to put our dependence upon you. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, there's no one looking around. The Bible says that we're all going to die someday. When you die, do you know for sure you're going to go to heaven? Or do you have some doubt? If there's even a little doubt in your heart, I would sure like to pray for you. 
oh, I'd never embarrass you. I'd never call your name out, but I'd sure like to pray for you. Is there anyone here this morning who say, Pastor, I do not know for sure where I'm going when I die, but I want to know, would you pray for me? If that's your position, would you put your hand up so I can see it and back down? Who would say, Pastor, would you pray for me this morning, please? Anyone? Right before I concluded my prayer, what is your need this morning? Has the Spirit of God revealed it? And are you willing, are you willing to put your dependence upon Jesus for that need? Whether that's learning patience or whatever that is. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time. I thank you for giving us this, this illustration of this impotent man. I thank you for your merciful heart that saw him and saw fit to heal him. And I pray, Lord, that you might offer that same spiritual healing to us when we come to you. Thank you for this time. Continue to work in our hearts, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.